Hi, I'm Paul Johnson. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Life Support. I thought yeah. I was going to die in my addiction. Mm-hmm. I I truly thought somebody was going to put a bullet in me, something. I, I was not going to live much longer. In fact, I tell people that prison saved my life. All In Ministries Director Dennis Otto has experienced drug addiction, drug sales, prison, and the redeeming grace of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now as a mentor of men, he shares all of that today on Life Support. Everything you do from then on is different. One of the detectives, I think his name was He was a golden boy. All we can do right now is come together. Extreme domestic violence, multiple rapes. Hey, I'm so glad you've joined us on Life Support. We do in this program as we tell stories about sometimes difficult periods of time in our lives, and and but God's always in the middle of that, and we want to glorify Christ and bring hope to you today. God is never, ever outside of the picture, that's for sure. My guest is Dennis Otto. He is the executive director and uh, founder of All In Ministries, and uh, so glad to have you here, Dennis. Thank you for coming by. Thank you, Pastor Paul. It's a privilege to be here. All right. Now, I'm looking at a, a book that you wrote. It's called That Man is Dead. And on the front, it looks like you. Um, a mugshot. It's got all kinds of like different crimes listed on top. And um, that brings up a whole bunch of questions right at the beginning. So tell me about the book and and about this period of your life and what was going on, and, and how did you end up doing what you're doing right now, which is helping others that have been through this, right? Yep, yep. Yes, Pastor Paul, that's a picture of my mugshot when I was sentenced to 110 months in prison. That's my actual arrest sheet on the cover. Is that right? And that man is dead. Hmm. The I was a drug addict my whole life, and it ended with a 110-month prison sentence. So God was in that whole thing, huh? I didn't even know God then. Yeah. I, I had no belief in him. I was actually scared to believe in him because I thought if God is real, I'm in a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so I was really hoping he wasn't real at that mm-hmm. time. So where did you grow up? Hastings, Minnesota. Okay. So tell me about your childhood and, and what led to this. Um, I grew up in a good home. Good home, good Catholic home. Uh, my dad was a hard worker. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. Took very good care of us. I've got four sisters and a brother. I'm the only one that's ever seen the inside of a jail cell. Um, and I want you to know that because I, addiction has no boundaries. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what race you are, how much money you've got in the bank. Addiction has no boundaries. I started doing drugs at a very young age. I was introduced to it by my older cousin. And really when I started it, it was because I wanted to be like the older boys. You know, I was 13. I think my cousin was like 16 or 17. So the first time I did drugs, I liked it right away, mm-hmm. right away. And that should have been a red flag. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but when you're that young, you don't know those red flags, right? Yes, yes. And so, I mean, I graduated high school in 1976, became, became a heavy equipment operator uh, with more, you know, which is a good job, which brought more money, meant more drugs, more partying. Uh, I worked hard, but I played harder. Mm-hmm. And so what happened next? So you got your, now you're working, but you're still partying and... 
Well, I was uh, I got a DWI back in like '79. Okay. And like any good lawyer, my lawyer said, "Dennis, go to treatment before you go to court because judges like that." So I went to treatment, and when I was in treatment, I realized that I had a drinking problem, not a drug problem. Because when I drank is when I'd black out. When I drank is when I became violent. I'd lose my temper. When I drank is when I'd lose control. Drugs didn't do that. So I decided to quit drinking, which I did. Not drugs, drinking. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then instead of moving to back to Hastings, which was a small town, and I was pretty well known in the town, I moved to the east side of St. Paul. Now, I like doing drugs, but I don't like paying for them. So I started dealing drugs, and I started running with a small motorcycle club up in, on the east side of St. Paul, and I was dealing drugs. And I found my niche. I really, I mean, I kept working, but I, I really enjoyed dealing drugs. Um, and that went on for quite a few years, and then I met a gal, Shelly. We moved in together. We had a, our first son, uh, Brandon, was born. And about two months after Brandon was born, my best friend that I ran around with on the east side went down for murder one. He beat a guy to death. Hmm. And when that happened, I realized this isn't who I was. I thought, man, who am I even hanging out with? This guy went down, my best friend, murder one. That's, that's not how I was raised. That's not who I am. So the three of us, we packed up. We moved back to Hastings. And when I moved back to Hastings... I really left the dealing behind and the harder drugs behind. I started concentrating on raising my family. And uh, Shelly and I ended up getting married. Then our second son, uh, Ryan, was born. And in 1990, my daughter, Danica, was born. That same year, I bought a house out in Hampton. I was a strong member of the community. I was the mayor of Hampton for two terms, training officer of the fire department, everything. I was, I was doing everything right on the outside. But inside our marriage, it was falling apart. And still no God awareness at this point. No God. Okay. None. And uh, the marriage started falling apart, and I couldn't understand why. And one day after Danica was about three and a half, four years old, I come home from work and my wife tells me that she's got something she wants to tell me. But she was scared to do it without some support. So she goes, I'm going to wait till Friday when some friends can come over and be support for her. So all that night, I'm trying to guess what, what could this possibly be? Uh, yeah. That's... You know? And so I'm asking her questions and she'd always say, it's worse than that. I even asked her at one point, I said, did you sleep with somebody? And she said, it's worse than that. Well, that night I'm watching the news and my daughter, Danica, is laying on my lap. And all of a sudden it hit me, Paul. All of a sudden I looked down at my daughter and I looked at my wife Mm -hmm. and I said, is she mine? And my wife got up and bolted. So I knew right then and there that this little girl that stole my heart Mm -hmm. and that, I mean, she was my everything that she wasn't mine. And at that time, it, it felt like somebody took my little girl. Now, I just want you to understand, my little girl's my little girl yeah. to this day. I yeah. don't care whose DNA she has. Mm-hmm. She's my little girl. Mm-hmm. But at that moment, it felt like she was gone, and I broke down. Well, I took off, and I went to a friend's house to babysit me because my whole MO was when I hurt, 
I'd go hurt somebody else. That's what made me feel better. So I left and I went to a friend of mine to babysit me so I didn't kill somebody or kill myself. And after a few days, I go back home and I talk to my wife and I said, you know, Shelly, I said, if I kick you out, the ones that are going to suffer are the kids. So I said, I'll swallow my pride and let's go to counseling and work on this. Well, a few months later, she had another boyfriend. Well, we got divorced. And after the divorce, I kept the house because I could afford to and stuff. And her and the kids moved into her new boyfriend's place anyhow. And that's when things started to fall apart. I'd, I'd come home from work and I'd walk around that empty house. I'd cry. I'd scream. Yeah. I, I, didn't, I had no coping skills. Well, that's, that would be a lot for anybody to cope with. Yes. No matter I, how good their coping yeah, skills are, right? Yes. Yeah. So I went to my employer and I said, Irv, I said, get me out of town. I said, coming home to that empty house, it's going to drive me crazy. I said, get me out of town. So he sent me down to Okaboji, Iowa. And the second or third night down there, I went to a strip club with some of the guys I worked with. And I started to do something that I haven't done in 17 years. I started drinking again. Mm. And I didn't just drink. I was drinking straight shots of Jack Daniels. And I don't know how many I had, but it wasn't long. Bouncers laying on the floor. I'm on top of them. I'm wild like a banshee. People pulled me off of them. I head up to a different bar. Within minutes, another poor guy's. He, they didn't know what they were walking into. It wasn't them I was fighting. Yeah. It was all this stuff I had bottled up inside of me. Yeah. Well, then right after that, I started dealing again. Started dealing with the strippers and stuff. I started dealing drugs. Uh, my life became a mess, a complete mess. Uh, about, I suppose it was about 98 I was introduced to this new drug called red phosphorus fluff. Now, I've done drugs my whole life. That drug rocked me. Hmm. And so I right away I started dealing it. Well, the guy I was buying it from, his house gets raided. Him and his girlfriend get thrown in jail. He's got enough money to bail himself out, but not enough money to bail his girlfriend out. So he came to me and asked me if I'd help. I said, sure. I bailed her out, and then I told him, I said, I live in this four-bedroom, huge house by myself. You can't go back to your place. Why don't you move in with me till you get back on your feet? So for doing that, he taught me how to manufacture this methamphetamine. Mm -hmm. Well, and then I started running with the 1% Motorcycle Club. Uh, actually, one of the patch holders lived with me. I was never a patch holder. I was what you would call a hangaround. So I a made, patch holder would be what? Like a, a official member of the gang? Yes. Okay. Yes. And he was my best friend. He's actually mm -hmm. my friend to this day yet. Uh, but yeah, so I started running with them. Things got crazier. I became on a target on the Dakota County Drug Task Force team. And it ended with a 110-month prison sentence. So how did that feel when you realized that this was real, like you were going to prison? Well, St. Cloud is where everybody goes the first time. And if you've ever driven by St. Cloud, that's kind of a intimidating place to it really drive is by. right from right from 10 there you drive by and it's this big gray it's almost like you think of shawshank redemption or something <laughs> when you drive by that place yes i was i was nervous 
I wasn't really scared because I knew I could do the time. I, I, I was somebody that I wasn't really concerned about that. Actually, though, deep down, I think I was relieved mm-hmm. because that was my way out. It's over. I survived it. Now I just survived prison, and I'll move on from there. So before that, you were obviously in a lifestyle that um, you you thought was going to lead nowhere, and you were kind of waiting for the worst to hit you. Is that kind of how it felt? Yes, I thought yeah. I was going to die in my addiction. Mm-hmm. I I truly thought somebody was going to put a bullet in me, something. I, I was not going to live much longer. In fact, I tell people that prison saved my life. More from Pastor Paul and Dennis Otto in just a moment. This is Steve Johnson, Executive Director of Five Stone Media, a co-presenter of this program. It's stories like this that led us to write a devotional called God is Always With You, 31 Days of Hope and Healing for Grief and Loss. If you're interested in a copy as a gift for a loved one, you can find out more at the Five Stone Media Facebook page. Just spell out Five Stone Media on Facebook. And now, back to Pastor Paul. Well, and God used prison to save your life. Uh, I'm talking with Dennis Otto. He has written a book called That Man is Dead. He's also the uh, founder of All In Ministries. Um, now you're, you're finding out you're going to prison. Where did God enter into all of this? Because you had this Catholic upbringing kind of just wandered and this whole time, and now all of a sudden you're confronted with this new reality, right? Yes. I, I walked out of prison in 2006, two weeks before my 48th birthday. I still didn't know God. Uh, I knew I didn't want to be the person I was before I went to prison. I definitely didn't want to be the guy I was when I was in prison, but I didn't know who I was. I had no identity. My my identity since I was 13 was in drugs. I knew I didn't want to go back. And so I really, I started white-knuckling it. Uh, I was going to N.A. because I had to, you know, because uh, I was on intense supervised release. Mm-hmm. And I met a gal there. Her name's Patty. Uh, when I met her, she had a ring on her finger. She was engaged to be married. She's 19 years younger than I am. And we went out for coffee with the group one night, and I told her, I, we were talking, and I told her, I said, you're going to end up dating me. <laughs> and, you know, I think she just thought I was a little bit full of myself, which yeah, I was. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we did start to date. Mm-hmm. And uh, she ended up getting pregnant with my child, and that's when her all-Christian family found out about me. Mm. I... Don't think I received any Christmas cards that first couple I bet not. Of years. <laughs> Probably not thrilled. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They weren't. You know, yeah. here I'm 19 years older. I'm an ex-con. Um, I don't know Jesus. She was raised Christian and fell away, <clears throat> you know. But, uh, yeah, the family didn't care for me much. I bet. But was that God's uh, way of entering you into that world, though? Yes. Yeah. We, uh, after our son was born, Patty and I moved in together. And I knew her family didn't, I, I don't want to say they didn't like me, but they were very cautious with me. You know, I was, I was pretty rough around the edges. Well, I'd go to family functions because my kid is mine. And yeah. even though he's part of your family, I'm going to come. Mm-hmm. And so one night we're out to eat. 
and Patty's, bro- Patty's brother-in-law, Matt Longawa, sitting across the table from me. And he's a very strong Christian man. And he's looking at me. And I'm thinking, dude, what are you looking at? <laughs> you know? And all of a sudden he goes, Dennis, where are you at spiritually? And I sat back and I thought, first my first thought was, who talks like this? Right, yeah. Where have you ever heard that before? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And nobody I know ever talked like that. Yeah. And so I was going to come back with some sort of zinger. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know the things I've done? You know, stuff like that. And all of a sudden, I heard a voice. And it said, Dennis, for once in your life, be honest. Now, Pastor, I've, I've, I've done a lot of drugs in my life. I've probably seen a few things that weren't really there. But I've never heard voices before, so it really made me pause. And, and all of a sudden, I looked at Matt, and I was honest. I said, Matt, I've been living in hell my whole life. I hope when I die, it's better than this. Hmm. And so he, had, you know, he started asking me questions. He goes, do you believe in God? Do you believe in Jesus? And I said, Matt, I said, the things I've done, the things I've saw done, the other things I've heard done, I said, it's really hard for me to believe there's a God that lets this go on. And I said, and if there is a God, I said, I see good people, good people, yet their little boy's dying of cancer or their daughter gets hit by a car and killed. I said, if God's not there helping good people, I said, why the hell would he do anything for a man like me? Mm -hmm. I said, that makes no sense. Why would God do anything for me? Well, we talked the night away, and uh, he, he asked me, if he goes, if I give you a book, would you read it? And I said, you bet. And so he gives me a book called One Heartbeat Away, written by Mark Cahill, who's a street evangelist. I read that book in a couple of days, and in the back of the book, he had two prayers, a prayer of condemnation and a prayer of salvation. And he said, if you don't pray the prayer of salvation, by default, you prayed the prayer of condemnation. Hmm. I was living that prayer my whole life. I was Mm -hmm. tired. I got down on my knees and I gave my life to Christ. That was March 15, 2010. Wow. Wow. Good for him for pursuing you and to not just stop at one question. That's how God uses people like that. And uh, good for him. But that's not a very long time. I mean... You know, that's only 12 years. I know it. And and what has God done in that time? God has, first I got plugged into my church that I started going to, started ushering. And then uh, they did a a video testimony of my story. And right after that, people were coming up to me, Dennis, would you talk to my son? Mm. Would you talk to my dad, my brother, my husband? And so I started just, I, I don't want to say I was working with them. I just was walking with them through this life, you know, going, helping them with struggles that I already worked myself through. Yeah. Yeah. And you're doing that right now. Yes. So tell me a little bit about that. Like when you're dealing with guys, you're dealing with guys coming out of prison, right? Prison, out of treatment. Okay. Uh, I work in three different treatment centers. Before COVID hit, I was doing programs in two different jails. And then I walk with seven guys right now, full time. Wow. Good for you. Um, what's the biggest um, issue or hurdle for them to try to get their lives together, do you think? Or is, it, is, it, is there one commonality, or are they all so different that it's... Well, one thing I've seen with guys that have gone through the treatment and done their, you know, living in transitional houses, got a job, started doing what they need to, 
it's hard for them to get to the next step because they can't get housing mm. because they're a felon. And mm-hmm. it's just sad to see them sitting in a transitional house for two, three years. Because they can't pass a background check, they don't have credit, that kind of thing? That's right. Yeah, And, and some of them even have credit. It's just mm-hmm. because they have that felon yeah. behind their name. Places won't rent to them. Mm-hmm. And so what do you do to help them in those situations? I help them look. We just keep looking. Keep looking. Uh, I've actually talked to my board. This is our grand vision is someday to have a place that will be felon-free felon-free rental for these guys. Good for you. So what would you tell somebody right now in our last couple minutes together that is thinking, you know, I've messed my life up. I don't think that I can ever get this back together. I had a neighbor I used to go visit, um, older guy, and I'd walk over, he'd be in his garage, and I would talk to the gospel, you know, with him about the gospel, and he'd look at me and say, you don't understand, God could never forgive me for what I've done. He never told me what he did. So what would you say to someone listening that's got that view of themselves? Well, I met a guy one day, and this guy did 20 years in a Brownsville, Texas prison. His name was Jorge. And he, he brought this right up to me. He said, Dennis, I can't. He goes, I understand forgiving others, but I'm having a hard time forgiving myself. And I looked at him and I said, then don't. I said, show me in the Bible where Jesus says to forgive yourself. He doesn't. That's what Jesus does. Mm-hmm. And I tell him, I don't care <clears throat> who you are. Every human being owes a debt that we cannot pay. That debt was paid by Jesus. Let Jesus do what he came here to do and forgive you. That's yeah, really good counsel because we do kind of live in that world of, you know, I, how do I forgive myself for this and that? But it's kind of God's purview. It's kind of his world. Yes. Right? Yes. And I do, you know, we do need to learn to live with yes, ourselves. Yes, sure. Of course. <clears throat> and the way mm-hmm. I tell guys, for me, the best way that I can live with what things I've done in my past is by helping others out of that past, out of that mess, out of that darkness. Yeah, I find it remarkable that God took a situation that you were in um, where society would have, you know, just kind of given up. And but he he was like in the midst of the sin that you were committing and all that. And and, you know, the stuff you were doing was not good. God's weaving this kind of new life for you the whole time. And he knew that when you got clean and you got saved and everything that he had guys that desperately needed you. And that's kind of cool to think of it that way, that God is working even in the midst of our own darkness. Yes, and I've actually been told, the guy that, my old buddy that went down for first-degree murder, we talked about two months ago, and, and I told, I asked him, I said, Mike, I said, would you have believed back then that I would be a pastor, running a ministry, doing all this? And he looked, he said, Dennis, Yes. He goes, because Dennis, he goes, in the past, even though you would do anything any one of us would do, if not more, he said, you were always different. He said, you were never one of us. Interesting. And I thought, really? And then it brought back a memory in prison. I actually had two different guards come up and ask me what I was doing there because they said, you're different. You're not like these other men. So I believe God was, well, Mm -hmm. I know he was always with me, always prodding me, pushing me, mm-hmm. even when I wasn't. Softening your heart yes. and getting you ready. Yes. The book is called That Man is Dead, and um, your ministry 
is All In Ministries. How can someone find out more about that? Uh, on the website, All In Ministries, you know, www.allinministries.org. Um, my email is Dennis at All In Ministries. You know, that would be the way. Okay. Hey, thanks for sharing your story. It's a, it's a really hopeful story, but I know it's hard to tell sometimes, so thanks a lot for being here. Thanks, Pastor Appreciate Paul. it very much. And you know what? If you're, if you're wondering about forgiveness and you're wondering if you can be forgiven by God, the Bible is very clear that if you ask for forgiveness, that he is faithful and righteous to forgive you of all your sins. And so there is nothing that you've done. There's nothing that you're doing right now that you can't be forgiven for. So don't ever think that there's a wedge between you and God that cannot be bridged. Um, God has his hand out ready for you. He loves you. Just as Dennis was saying, he was preparing his heart this whole time. So just remember that. And we want to thank our partners that make this possible. Faith Radio has been great to us, myfaithradio.com. You can watch a video presentation of this podcast at 5 stonemedia.com and you can check us out here at Ridgewood Church as well at myrwc.org Thanks a lot for listening and we'll catch you next time right here on Life Support. This is Steve Johnson, Executive Director of Five Stone Media, a co-presenter of this program. It's stories like this that led us to write a devotional called God is Always With You 31 Days of Hope and Healing for Grief and Loss. If you're interested in a copy as a gift for a loved one, you can find out more at the Five Stone Media Facebook page. Life Support is a co-production of Five Stone Media and Ridgewood Church in Minnetonka, Minnesota. listening to this life support podcast these conversations are available because of listener support you can make a gift now at myfaithradio.com to avoid missing future editions of life support subscribe to the podcast today at itunes or your podcast player and thanks for sharing this audio link with a friend and grow the impact of life support